So I've titled tonight's message, God's Grace and Our Compromise. We're going to talk a lot about compromise. This, this chapter is a picture of compromise, and it's not a picture of the blatant rebellion that we saw in the life of Achan back in chapter 7. But more so, it's those, those things that come to us that look completely innocent. We allow ourselves to tolerate them without giving much thought or seeking the Lord. We allow these things in that seem to be innocent, seem to be peaceful, seem to be okay, and yet they're a major part of our destruction, our downfall. So God's grace in our, in our compromise, we compromise. We are the ones that mess up. We are the ones that, that do wrong, and yet he has grace with us. He has grace in our lives and through our lives. In this chapter, this is a, an amazing picture of what is going on with, with that title, with that, that understanding. There's a great exhortation at the end of this chapter that we are not to be defeated by these things. We are not to be defeated. We are not to be brought down by the areas of compromise in our life, it actually tells us on what, on exactly what we should be doing with them. And as we work our way through this, this chapter, looking at the, the treaty with the Gibeonites that is made, we're going to understand how, yeah, there was a failure. Yeah, there was compromise. But as always, God redeems it. So let's start at the top and work our way through it. Verse 1. And it came to pass... When all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, that's in the promised land, that's in Canaan, who were in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it. We'll, we'll get to what they heard about down in verse 3, but really it's about what Joshua had done at Jericho and Ai. Joshua had a victory at Ai and at Bethel and is now working his way towards the center area of the promised land. He's working his way towards the middle of the land. And now these tribes that were from the north and the south of the promised land of the land of Canaan that are normally antagonistic towards one another, they normally were going at one another, now they have a common enemy, so now they are banning together. What they hear is that there has been victory in the land. The Joshua is setting up an altar right in the middle of Canaan to worship the God who destroyed the Egyptians. The Gibeonites were going to learn that they are going to realize that they cannot defeat Israel because of this mighty God. The rest of them are thinking that if we all band together, if we all join forces, if we come together as one accord or in one mouth, that we will have victory. Verse 2 says, And they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Understand, this is right after the renewal of the covenant of chapter 8. This is right after it. There's no break. There is a great victory at Ai. There are good things happening. Great things are going on. They're setting up an altar to the Lord. They're renewing their covenant to the Lord. They're, re they're reading the law. They're taking this time to set themselves before the Lord as they proceed through. They think things are going great. Now you and I both know that when things are going great, that when God is doing exciting things, that there is going to be an attack from one direction or, or another. That's the way it is. The enemy does not like what we do. Satan does not like the fact that we are living our lives for the Lord. And he will do whatever he can 
to distract or to derail us from that life. I'm sure like you, we are like myself, like you, we are all waiting for that quiet time, that downtime, that kind of break in life. Well, I can tell you now that break is only going to come when the trumpets are sound and the Lord calls us home. From now till then, there's nothing that we do that the enemy doesn't like. And our lives are lived and battled. We are constantly trying to live a life that is pleasing and honorable and accepted by the Lord that is seen as righteousness to him. And the enemy does not like that. He doesn't like the fact that we're here together now studying his word. I grew up in the church. I know what Sunday mornings are like. Sunday mornings, the morning when you're supposed to be excited and at peace and ready to go worship the Lord and praise the Lord and spend time studying Him and in fellowship with those around you and community, getting to know those around you more in the body and in the faith. Those are usually the mornings where everyone in the house is at odds the most. It's a difficult thing to get out the door. There's so many things that try to dissuade us, to distract us from even going to church that sometimes it's just easier to give up and not even go. The enemy does not like what we do. And there's a constant reminder of that and the struggles and the difficulties of this life. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily. And they went and they pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins that had been torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a very far country, now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So these, these men from Gibeon, they went to Gilgal. Now, Gibeon is about 25 miles from Gilgal. 25 miles, that's all. The whole idea here is that they are sneaky. They're crafty. They're deceivers of men. They are deliberately working in a way that would deceive the Israelites. When they, when they understood, when they heard what had happened at Jericho and Ai, I'm sure these men were filled with fear. If Joshua, if the Israelites could take down Jericho with their walls and their fortifications, what could they do to us? They took down Ai and Bethel. We're next. And so they try to meet him, kind of cut him off at the pass. Yet the way that they went about it was through deception. I think they were very aware of what was said in Deuteronomy. Perhaps just before this, this story, before this chapter, when, when they were renewing the covenant on Mount Abel and Mount Gerizim, like we read last time, when they, when they were reading the law, I'm curious if the Gibeonites, if some of the men heard what was said. Seems like they were aware of it. This is what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 to 18. It says this, When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. It shall be, if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you. They will be tributaries, they will be slaves to you, and they will serve you. 
Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. So if they want peace, give them peace. If they want war, give them war. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women and the children, the livestock and all that are in the city, all that spoils, you shall plunder for yourself. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. That is on the outside of the promised land. That is on the east side of the Jordan. Now, verse 15, thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you. Sorry, thus you shall do from all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. That's what you do to the people outside of the promised land, outside of Canaan. If you offer them peace and they accept peace, you give it to them. If they don't and they want to fight, you fight. But, verse 16, of the cities of the people which, are, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, so now we're in the promised land, now we're in Canaan, you shall let nothing that breathes, breathes remain alive. Nothing. You shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God commanded you lest they teach you to do according to their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. That list of nations we just read here. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. These are the people that are coming together and, and trying to band together to fight against Israel. And in Deuteronomy, they were given some very specific instruction to destroy them all. The commandment was, once you are settled in the land, when you make war with foreign nations outside the land, if they say they're not going to fight and they will submit, you give them peace. Now the Gibeonites, they must have heard this. They must have understood something because they are coming to pret and pretending to be a people from afar away. Their actions and the way they speak means that it shows some understanding to this text. Now, when compromise comes, it never comes admitting that it's an enemy. It never comes saying, hey, I'm about to ruin your life, but come and talk with me anyways. Compromise does not come showing its hand as evil or as bad. It comes with an attitude that it's not really that bad. It's okay. And if you really think about it, there's nothing wrong with it. Some might call it lead poisoning. Well, I, I feel led to do this. I don't feel led to do that. Well, my, my girlfriend and I, we feel led to live with each other and to move in with each other. You can spiritually rationalize or justify any excuse if that's what you really want. But yet it's still compromise. Compromise comes looking worn out. It comes and looks non-threatening and never pretends to be an enemy. It looks like something that's really not that big of a deal. It looks innocent. The Gibeonites, they are coming like they have traveled from a faraway distance. They are coming to look to make peace. Make a covenant with us. Make a treaty with us. It's exactly what compromise wants you to do. It looks to make an agreement of peace that will eventually bring you, bring us, bring me down to our destruction. And that's exactly what's happening here. They put all the work into making themselves look like something they are not. 
to be accepted when they know they should be attacked and, and destroyed. Verse 7. Verse 7 is going to actually tell us that the Gibeonites are part of the Hivites. So they are part of this group to be destroyed. Verse 7. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? The children of Israel here, they're showing that they know in their gut that something isn't right, that something's wrong here. God is very gracious to us and he allows us to have a discerning spirit to kind of have this sense of something's not quite right. How many times do we get into something and we knew before we got into it, it in our gut we knew that this was not right and that we shouldn't be doing it. Well, these men of Israel, they're having that gut check moment of questioning the Gibeonites. They're kind of saying there's something fishy going on about this whole scene, but they're going to ignore it. They are ignoring their own sense of fishiness. God has given you a sense of fishiness, and it's a wonderful thing. When you sense something is fishy or off, pay attention to it. What it really is, is discernment. Fishy is just something that helps me understand what's more, what, what is going on more. Discernment is just understanding properly what is going to happen outside of our natural senses. So outside of our natural senses, it's something that kind of goes off that says something's not right here. In the Bible, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, that's not something that you actually do with your tongue that's something you do with your heart. It also says to take hold of the promises of God. Again, that's not something we do with our physical hands. We do it with our heart. We also read, as we behold him, as we set our eyes upon him, we are being changed into his image to look more like him. That is not something that is done with our physical eyes but it is something that you see with your heart as you set yourself before him, as you focus on him, as you meditate on his word, he starts changing you, but that's not something that you do with your physical stature, something that he does internally. And you know what? You don't even have to depend on your sense of fishiness. If you know the text... It's a whole lot easier. The more you know the book, the more you are going to know immediately what to do, right or wrong. In this instance, the enemy knew the word. Guess what, guys? The enemy knows the word. We can see that in Matthew and the temptation of Christ himself. Satan was quoting scripture to him. The enemy knows our playbook and he'll use it against us if we give him the opportunity. In Acts 17, it talks about having the Berean mindset. That there was a, the, this group of men that they tested everything by the scripture. They didn't just accept and receive everything in and believed it all to be true. They tested it against the scripture. And if the scripture proved it to be right, they believed it. They held on to it. They accepted it. But if by challenging what they have heard by the scripture came to be false, they rejected it. And we should be doing that with everything that's coming at us. 
from mainline news media to social media, even here. Don't just take what I say because I'm saying it. Take it to the Word and say, Lord, is this really what's true? Test what you hear by the Word of God. And if you think something is off, more than likely it is. Because His Holy Spirit is faithful to be with us, to preserve us, to protect us, to lead us, and to guide us. The Gibeonites knew that if they were presented as a nation from far away, Israel didn't have to kill them. That they could make a covenant, they could make a treaty with them. That's exactly what they were asking for. They knew what to do. That's why, again, I think I, they, they have a proper understanding of Deuteronomy. They knew exactly what to do. You don't think that the enemy doesn't know exactly how to bring you down, how to tempt you, how to distract you? How to put you in a place of compromise? It's not that bad. Only you're going to know about it. No one else is going to hear or see anything. It's just you. It's okay. It's okay to have this moment because this action is better than something worse. So I'll do this because it's better than something worse. And God will forgive me. So it's okay. That's called false grace. If you know you shouldn't have that one last drink, you shouldn't have the response of saying, it's okay, there's grace. If you shouldn't say those words coming out of your mouth, don't excuse yourself by saying, it's okay, there's grace. If you shouldn't be looking at what you're looking at, don't excuse it away by saying, it's okay, there's grace. The Bible is very clear on that. Psalm 108 says, I have set nothing wicked before my eyes. And here's the catch. It's not my definition of wickedness. It's God's. How does he define wickedness? We don't set anything wicked before our eyes based on his definition. It's a very clear, very clear statement. But don't excuse it away by saying there's grace. There is grace, and we're going to get to that in this chapter. But don't abuse grace by using it to aid in your own sin, in your own compromise. Verse 8. But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said, Who are you? And where did you come from? The Gibeonites are saying that we are your servants. They're going to say this repeatedly. This is going to be something they say over and over again. Compromise is never your servant. It will always be your master. Compromise will come in and say, it's okay, I just want to help you right now. And then as soon as you buy into it, it owns you. Because how are you going to say no the next time? Or the next time? Or the next time? Compromise will never come in and be subservient to you. As soon as you acknowledge it, as soon as you buy into it and accept its actions, accept its offer, you have now become the servant. You have now become the slave. So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants, see once again, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. 
Man, compromise knows how to flatter. Compromise knows and understands God talk, God speak. It knows how to use spiritual things to get you to do it at once. The enemy is coming and saying, because of the name of your Lord, they're bringing God into this. Because of what he's done, we want to be your servants. And that can sound really appealing. Man, they, they know what's going on. They know who God is. So it's okay. We can believe them. Sadly, Joshua is not going to the Uman or the Thuman. He's not seeking God. He's not going to Eliezer the priest and seeking wisdom or counsel. There are things that Joshua could have done to keep him from this place of compromise. But he didn't do any of them. He's not listening. And again, he's not listening with his physical ears. He's not listening with his heart. He's not allowing that discerning spirit to come and say, hey, Joshua, something's wrong here. We should be slow to act. We should be quick to seek the Lord. Now, this might sound like a silly illustration, but it works for me, so you got to hear it. I was not one of those typical American boys growing up playing baseball. First time I actually picked up a ball or a bat, I was probably 24, 25, and wasn't anything serious. I was playing for a church softball league. And so I'm 24, 25, I'm somewhere in that range, learning how to play the game. I love it now, absolutely love it. My son plays, my daughter plays, I love helping and helping coach some of the teams, but I was learning how to play this sport. And you know, if, if you've ever played, which most of you probably have at some point, because it is the all-American sport, I just wasn't that guy. When you're, when you're up to bat, there's a, a, there's a time where you want to just swing because you think the ball is close, so you, you want to swing. But it's usually a little farther out or it's too co close in and you, you don't have a good hit. One of my buddies that was kind of laughingly teaching me how to play, he was like, when you think you want to swing, wait one. Wait one, you know, uh, split second, wait one, just let the ball come in a little bit more, then swing. And you know what, guess what? It worked. But there was something about that that stuck with me. Because normally when I, I, I'm a very task-focused, I'm a very reactionary person. If something needs to get done, I hop up, I want to do it. If I see a need, I do. Okay? I like to react, I like to get things done, I like to help. So if I know there's a need, I want to be there. If something needs to be done, I'll do it. Not always a good thing. I need to wait one. I need to say, okay, Lord, there's something in front of me. I'm understanding that there's, there's a response that needs to happen. Instead of me just reacting to the, to the situation and just doing what I think or what I perceive to be right, I need to wait one. I need to allow time for the Spirit to say yes or no. Not only do I need to leave time for the Spirit, I need to be able to hear the Spirit. And what's going on here, Lord? Am I supposed to respond to this? Am I supposed to do something here? Yeah, no, just let me know what's going on. Joshua had many tools around him, many opportunities to wait one, but he didn't do it. He reacted. Instead of responding in the Spirit, responding by the Lord, he just reacted in, his, in himself. How many times does God talk, religious speech, lead us right into compromise? 
Guess what? If a group of Christians is doing something and you got a check in your heart or you got that fishy sense, it doesn't mean that it's okay and it's right just because a group of Christians are doing it. Ask the Lord. Seek Him. Verse 10, And all that He did, so they're going to continue with the God talk, they're going to continue with the, 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 the spiritual facade, and all that He did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. What they're doing here is they're mentioning victories on the east side of the Jordan. They're mentioning victories that happened outside the promised land. Because they are claiming to be a people from a great distance away, and if they were from a great distance, they would, know about, they would not know about the immediate victories of Ai and Jericho. So they're saying, we heard about these things from months and months and months ago that took place on the other side of the Jordan, far, far away from here, because we're from far away from here. i got to give it to them. Very sly, very cunning. They've put some thought into this compromise, into this deception. They know exactly the areas to talk about, they know the timelines. They know the, 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 the regional locations of things. They know how to address themselves. They put a lot of work into this. I guess if I was threatened with someone potentially coming in and, and, and harming me and taking my life, I would go to a lot of to great lengths to preserve myself. But these guys are taking it to a new level. Verses 11 to 13. Therefore, our elders, this is the Gibeonites talking still. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. That's the third time. Now, therefore, make a covenant, make a treaty, make peace with us. This bread of ours that we took hot from our provision from our houses on the day we departed to you. But now look. It is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which we filled, were new. And see, they are torn. And these, our garments and our sandals, have become old because of our very long journey. Now, if Joshua had any wits about him at this point, he would kind of be going, wait a second, you're coming as ambassadors? Well, where's your servants? Where's your entourage? Where's your cook, for crying out loud, to make you fresh bread? What's going on here? This doesn't add up. You're coming as ambassadors to offer basically a treaty of peace, a peace accord, and yet you're coming looking like a bunch of homeless guys on the road? Joshua should have seen right through this. But there is a facade that's being presented. And the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the mind that doesn't seek Christ first, decides all the time on the wrong information, on the wrong basis. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But the natural man, the carnal man, the man that does not seek the things of the Lord, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So if I am in my natural state, in my own humanistic understanding, the things of God might not, might not make sense to me, so I don't receive them. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So it's not something that I can humanistically, intellectually figure out. 
Again, it's got to be something I discern, I figure out, and, and, I, and I understand with my heart. But he who is spiritual judges all things, not some things, not most things, not a few things, all things. We test all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We as, as Christians, as people who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we should have his mind, the way that he processes, the way that he thinks. It's not with the humanistic natural settings, it's with the heart, the spiritual side. of going, Lord, what's going on here? Joshua, by that alone, should have sensed that there was something wrong here. But once again, he didn't take the time to seek counsel, to seek the Lord. He reacted in his own humanistic understanding, perceptions, and really the descriptions of what's going on around him. He made a, a, a judgment call. Guess what? He was wrong. Now, for the entire chapter, and I'm, I'm kind of, it's right in the middle. Verse 14, this is the key verse for this chapter. This is the key verse of what's going on here. Verse 14, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So not only did the leadership, Joshua, not go to the Lord, now the nation of Israel, the men of Israel, the leadership, the princes, they're accepting in this compromise, this enemy, without going to the Lord. They are walking by sight. They're not walking by faith. Now certainly we are to use our minds. God has given us some amazing amazingly brilliant theologians, apologists, people that can understand both the natural and the spiritual world in a way that they can, in an argument, in a debate, in a discussion, in a classroom, prove God. He has given us some amazing minds, and we are to use them for His glory. But in this situation, Joshua's mind failed him. In this situation, what are we supposed to do? We are to trust in the Lord with all, all of our hearts, lean not on our own understanding, and in all of our ways acknowledge him, and he will direct us. Now this is a very conditional statement. It's an if-then statement. The first three things, that's our part. Trust, lean not, and acknowledge. It says trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Again, not some, not most, not a portion, all. I'm to trust him with everything that I am, with everything that I have. Because reality is, the heart is where decisions are made. Before you do something, there has to be an internal decision that happens first. I see, someone on the, I see a homeless man on the street and I give him a $20 bill. Does my hand just automatically decide to reach into my pocket, pull out some money and give it to him? No, it's got to be decided somehow. It's got to be settled upon. So we're to trust the Lord with our heart, with the core of our decision-making process. We're to lean not on our own understanding. That can and should be an offensive statement at times. What does that mean? Don't trust yourselves. Don't trust yourself. When you take control of your own life, 
and you make the decisions, you make the judgment calls, you are at the wheel and you are in control, how's that work for you? Sometimes it's okay. Does it always end okay? Or do you end up spinning out or crashing into a wall or a myriad of other things? But yet when God's in control, it's when we usually experience the most joy and peace and victory and blessing in our life. And then again, all of our ways acknowledge Him. Understand that everything and anything in your life is from God and is of God. In all of our ways to acknowledge Him. To look for Him. I read something I read something online the other day, and it was, again, it's, it's simplistically profound. I think it was, if we are to put everything in God's hands, eventually we will see God's hand on everything. And I love that. If we put everything in his hands, eventually we will see his hands on everything. I don't know about you, but right now, I want to see God's hands on things. I want to be able to say, look, God's working right over there. Look what God did over here. Look at God's doing right now in front of us. I want to see him everywhere. That means I got to give him everything first. So our side is trust, lean not, and acknowledge. Then he will lead us. He will direct us. He will tell us where and how to go. We are not to throw our minds out the window, but we are to seek the Lord. Verse 15. So Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Here's the problem with compromise. First, we make peace with it. We accept it, we make peace with it. Then, we allow that compromise to live. We accept it, and then it lives on. And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Three days. All they had to do was wait three days. Israel realized the mess that they were in. They realized they did something they should not have done. I'm sure there are many times that, that I have, that you have, that we have repented. We've confessed our sins. We've realized we've done something wrong. He will forgive us, but now there's this mark on our resume. There's this thing that's now tied to us. And if we could have waited three days, one day, an hour, five minutes, maybe we could have avoided it altogether. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kirjoth, Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained. This is a sacred oath. They swore by the Lord God Almighty. So they've made this sacred oath, and now the people are complaining. Why are they complaining? Well, because of this sacred oath, God expects them to uphold it and to honor it because they swore in his name, so they can't do anything to the Gibeonites. So what? They don't get the spoils. 
They marched these 25 miles. They came to attack and to besiege this city and to take everything, and now they get nothing, and they start complaining. In 2 Samuel 21, God dealt with Saul because Saul killed Gibeonites. God said, I dealt with him because Joshua had made a covenant with the Gibeonites that they were to not be destroyed. Saul broke a covenant that was made in God's name hundreds of years earlier. Now, there is something very interesting about this compromise that we need to understand real quick about the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, they are going to be found in 2 Chronicles, in Ezra, and in Nehemiah. They will become what is known as the group called the Nephinim. Now, Nephinim means the given ones or the ones given over. Joshua is going to say that they can't kill them, so instead that they will be slaves from then on. The Gibeonites, the Nephinim, they are going to serve in the tabernacle. They are going to, be, going to become servants of the priests, and actually, Gibeah becomes a city of the priests. One of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. There are 5,000 Nephinim that come back from Persia, that come back from the Babylonian captivity in Ezra. They care more about Jerusalem than all of the wealth that they had in the east. God is going to take them. He is going to work in their lives. Their assignments to the tabernacle and to the true and living God will win their hearts. And in time, the Gibeonites are going to be listed as, the, as part of the children of Israel. God takes even this compromise and he redeems it. He does something remarkable with it so that the Gibeonites are part of the family of God. Now to me, that, that in itself is just amazing. He takes this, this folly. He takes this mistake, this really sin on the part of Joshua and the leaders, and he turns it around. And by his grace, this compromise becomes part of our eternal family. Verse 19, Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. The Gibeonites were protected because they were under an oath that was made through deceit. How safe are you and I under a better covenant? What assurances do we have under the blood of Christ that he, he died on the cross for us? His blood was spilt. He died for us. Nobody died here, yet there's a promise. Christ died and there's a promise. How much stronger is the promise that we have in him because of that? If the Gibeonites are safe because they came and they deceived Joshua, and a treaty, a peace accord, a covenant was made in the name of the Lord, how much more should you and I have a peace and the covenant that we have with the Lord. Even in a failed, deceitful covenant, the Gibeonites are safe because the word of the Lord is involved. Verse 20, This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the ruler said to them, Let them live. But let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. And then Joshua called for them, 
and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are from very far when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God, wood for the fires and water for the washing and cleansing. They're going to be the, the people, the slaves that we're going to find out, bring provisions into the altar that allow the sacrifices to take place, the washing to take place inside the tabernacle. First it was for the congregation, then it was for the Lord, and ultimately they will be the ones being supplying the, the needed materials for the altar. Again, God's grace on compromise. Take these people that he commanded to be destroyed. Through their deception, they are made safe. And what does he do with them? He brings them right into his house. Makes them a part of the worship for him. Last three verses, or last four verses, 24 to 27. So they answered Joshua and they said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. When the Gibeonites gave their answer, they were taking the word of God seriously. They were believing the word. They were saying... Moses commanded you that you were supposed to kill us. We don't want to die. So we've done this thing because we want to live. They took the word seriously. They believed what was said and they acted on it. If Joshua took the word as seriously as the Gibeonites, he would have acted differently towards them. But he did not go and seek counsel from the Lord. He acted in his own wisdom. He made his own decision. And it was wrong. So, what do we do with compromise? What do you do when you have been marked by it? What do you do when you have made a mistake and as a Christian, you can never get out from under condemnation? What's condemnation? Condemnation pushes us away from God in our embarrassment and in our shame. Conviction, however, it draws us back into God. It draws us closer to Christ, understanding His grace and His forgiveness. We can always come up with endless excuses when we are living in a way that we know to be fishy. When we know something is off, when we know something is fishy, we ignore it. We cross lines we shouldn't cross. We get involved in things we shouldn't get involved in. We say things we shouldn't say. We watch things we shouldn't watch. If we don't fully understand His grace towards us, then the weight of our compromise 
can at times feel like we are being buried alive. And there are times that our own condemnation, that embarrassment, that shame that drives us away from God, would have us think that not being alive would be better. We feel like collapsing under the weight of it. Now, we read in the Bible that God has forgiven us. God has forgiven you. But have we forgiven ourselves? Well, guess what? The Lord is very clear in what he says. You're forgiven. He accepts you as you are. He has forgiven you. Now, that might be something that some of you need to hear, that you have been forgiven by God. What does, he tell, what does the word tell us about it? forgiveness? About his forgiveness of us? As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. It, it's one of my paradoxical questions that I don't think I'll ever get an answer. Why do we remember the things that God forgets? We're told in the Bible that when God forgives us that he forgets that sin. It's gone. It's removed. It's like it was never there. Yet we hold on to it. We, re we remember it. We remember the sin of last year, of two years ago, of five years ago, of maybe even ten years ago. And we hold on to what he forgets. In his grace, he will use your compromise, my compromise, to become victorious in our lives. We need to realize the power of his grace and his love and let the woodcutters of our compromise fan that flame and burn within our hearts and say, okay, Lord, I get it. I've messed up. But because of your love for me, your forgiveness for me, my compromise, my sin will now be my servant. It will serve me. I will not serve it any longer. Luke 7.47 says this, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You are loved much, so you have been forgiven much. God's grace is immeasurable to us. Let your failures serve you. In fact, demand that they do. Now, if you have come back to Christ in genuineness, if you have confessed your sin to him, you don't need to live the rest of your life condemned about some failure in your life, however major or minor it may have been. There isn't anything that he delights in more than to take those broken pieces in your life that you allowed through rebellion or compromise and to turn them around and to serve you for the rest of your life. To let your failures be the cutters of wood, be the carriers of water in your life. Knowing that you are no longer a slave to them. God's grace and our compromise is something I don't think we can fully understand. I look at the, the Gibeonites. He was gracious to them. He moved and worked within their lives so that this sin, this black mark in Israel became part of Israel. They no longer stood out as, as separated, as distinct servants and slaves. They are now part of the family. 
And in his forgiveness, in his grace, that is his desire for you and for me as well. Let's pray.